0: Welcome to the Bourbon Boys. We only have one Bourbon Boy here, as per usual. Um, but I am joined by a co-host, uh, Kevin Ming, who's been on a couple times. Hey. Okay. And uh, our guest this week is going to be Brett Connors. What's up, guys? And Brett uh, works for Castle & Key. What's your official title, Brett? Uh,
1: industry title would probably be Brain Ambassador. You know, so i going by uh, consumptionist, whatever you want to call it whiskey geek all the same thing all
0: right so i want to get into a little bit of your background before we actually start talking about castling Key. um how did you get into bourbon
1: it really surprisingly took me a while to get into bourbon you know i really i started appreciating experience at a pretty early age um Mainly with, you know, different, like, viticulture, beer, morning, that kind of jazz. Uh, then segueing into other spirits, like scotch, Irish whiskey, cognac, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then really, college, I think, was my first experiences with bourbon. Um, but it was definitely a natural transition.
0: And what was your first bourbon you had in college?
1: Yeah, I, I think it was, like, Wild Turkey 101. That's pretty standard... Yeah, super easy
0: to get smitten by, wonderful profile, still as good as it was then. And if you had to pick one all-time favorite pour, what would it be?
1: It's funny, earlier today I was like writing all these out, trying to think of like a top 20 list, um, I found a lot of surprises. Uh, I think for me personally, it, a lot of it has to be old rise, you know, whether it's like the Mellon Brothers, Old Overhaul from 1909. Or was being produced by, you know, old Bernheim, uh, that was being sold to like Willard. some of those big monster eyes from like the I guess early odds, you know, Iron Fist, Velvet Glove, uh, Velvet Glove. So uh, stuff is. So stuff everyone can get, right? <laughs> yeah, you just go to a store and I think it's still there.
0: So what did you do before castling key Brett?
1: I was pretty fortunate to start my career on the food and that side. So while I was attending University in Fairfax, Virginia, I ended up working for a really great uh, independent restaurant company called Great American Restaurants. That's so kind of throughout the D.C. metro area. And it was really through that that I kind of found a passion just in general for hospitality, but more importantly for spirits, you know, food, um, just the way we source and produce things that I always found pretty interesting. And then once I uh, came back my master's program over at the University of Malta, which is just south of Sicily. I moved to Kentucky to be closer to my then girlfriend now wife, and just started kind of naturally transitioning back into, into that world. Working for a company called Malones, uh, Bluegrass Hospitality Group, uh, owned kind of a variety of different restaurants throughout the state. Um, fell back in love with and, to work, and it A lot easier to get the bourbons out than working for in Kentucky. So I worked for Malones for a while. Was doing some subsidiary bar consultation kind of throughout the U.S. And then help them open Old Bourbon County Kitchen, uh, which was their kind of first foray into were a, you know, very whiskey cocktail-driven bar. Where previously their bars had a great whiskey selection, but it wasn't really the same of uh, what they were trying to achieve. And how how did you meet your Mary Ann? So it was funny. Um, I really have to say that Will and Wes our two founding um, partners prior to meeting Mary Ann um, in 2014. But one of our mutual friends, Jack, uh, asked me to come uh, take care of them after I believe it was—I don't want to say oaks; it might have been oaks or right around Keenline. Um, so I came in and because I met them first, and then after about uh, six months of conversation with them, I remember Wes gave me a call and he said, "Hey, Marianne's um, he coming out to the store for an interview." I thought that for you. and I instantly was like, "How did you convince her to come out to the distillery?" She's um, absolutely Spectacular. Um, Yeah, let's see where it goes from here. And then I, the first time I met Marianne, I believe, was at a dinner at Will and Wes's house, potentially, or at the distillery. I can't remember specifically, but it was just an instant fit. And I think it's really what drove the project home for me that they were serious enough to bring on, you know, really a world class distiller to be able to run the site. Kevin, did you
0: get your question in? I'm good, he answered it. Okay. But do you want to answer it on the podcast, Brett?
2: Oh, what was the question?
0: Uh whatever he texted you. Oh
2: no, what he he took care of it in his in the last couple of
0: questions he's Oh, okay. okay.
2: Alright,
0: alright. Um so basically what do you do at Castle and Key now? We you know what your title is.
1: Yeah. so it's been really exciting. When I initially joined the project, I think the needs were just different. You know, being part of a startup company, everybody had the opportunity to work different hats. I think that's what always impressed me about Will and Wes and the rest of our team, was they allowed you to really develop into skills that best suited your interests and also that would best support our team as a whole. So when I first started, a lot of the work I was doing was very guest experience-centric. Um, working on a lot of our historical research to better flesh out really um, the story behind the distillers' inception, the transition from the initial founder, Colonel a. H. Taylor, to National Distillers, um, and then kind of filling in some of the gaps after National started to limit production on stage, um, which was really exciting um, and able to help with research development. And my and is super busy. I really, truly worked to be of that platform that side. I day-to-day, though, um, now that we've officially opened the public, which is exciting, I'm pretty fortunate in being able to support our guest experience, help um, with training our new uh, staff, our hospitality team is absolutely world this world great already, so just, um, information they need. Um, I read a lot of our VIP and industry experiences as well, so if a bar wants to come in and check out the site, um, or a retail VIPs, I really have the luxury to throw them around, which makes me a pretty spoiled tooth frankly. And are are you all officially open now? Yeah, so as of, um, I believe, two Wednesdays ago, so we've been open for almost two weeks now, uh, which has been the culmination of a heck of a lot of hard work over the last four years. What's your so we're open currently ahead. Wednesday through Saturday, um, and then actually this week we're expanding to Wednesday through Sunday. We'll be running uh, experiences half hour um, that are really super curated, um, really historically reflective, but with a lot of the modern uh, as well into that. So exciting!
0: Can you give us a little bit of a uh, idea of what the tour structure is, pay, and, and what's included?
1: So. When we were developing it, I think it was pretty fun to check out our experiences because we had the luxury to really look at everything else that was occurring on the bourbon trail. Um, and there's a lot of interest now. Visitors are going through kind of a variety of different experiences throughout the state. Um, but we faced pretty expansive challenges. Well, because our site was really never developed for high volume tourism, it was always really developed even from an initial shaping of the site. For this really interactive, relationally built perspective. And you know, a lot of that has to do with our focus for being first and foremost a whiskey distillery. You know, our production you know, couldn't be really reshaped to allow for high quality. really reshaped to allow for us to produce the best spirits we could. So instead of deciding to try to structure out this like super high throughput, like 150,000 visitors a year um, interaction off that, we could do a little bit more of a curated experience so every day we offer seven different experiences um, there are 15 visitors or under each one of those instead of that standard kind of hourish um, our experience has been running about 90 to about 110 minutes and a lot of that really has to do with both the scale of the site but also the depth of what we have to share frankly um, I know I think Kevin and Chad have you been on, on you know, I, haven't, so far? I haven't been since you
0: all opened I came the first few times when you were just showing me around
1: Oh yeah well I think it's really similar from what we were able to share in the beginning for you know different enthusiast groups and um, VIPs or industry to site just to bring people out the to site to share our history but also to talk about the challenges we face our stewardship of the modern site being able to bring it um, really to what it's to be um, and just really direct really our experience that if you're interested in architecture that if you really want to nerd out about or discipline, talk about where we're sourcing our rumor out in Daresville, Kentucky. Um, to if you just want to hear about how awesome Marianne is, we're able to really adjust that based on whatever our guests are or would like to hear about.
0: Yeah, I think the last time I came was with Valerie. Oh, yeah, that was
1: a year and a half ago almost at this point. Yeah, it was like right before I left. Yeah, well, now we have sideways and. I guess the light and, and accessible programs. so um, it's definitely come a long way, I think. I'll
2: bet. You'd be shocked with how much it's changed in the past year. I mean, I'm shocked with, like, a month's worth of change. Oh yeah. years, you've got to get
1: back, man. I think that's really a credit to our whole team that's been working on the project. You know, when I first started and the first time I really saw the site, it was in a state that I think is almost indescribable – to what you see in the current iteration, where 80 percent of the roofs were missing, there's no water, no gas, no sewage on site. Um, heck, we didn't have the first year I worked on, on site. Uh, it was in pretty bad shape for me. A lot of that was neglect or the I had seen um, since Nashville uh, left it in 1887, completely before that shutting down production in For Will and West, Ham, I don't want to say ignore that but to understand that as a channel to circumnavigate that give the site what it deserves i think special
0: yeah i remember the first time i came out there was basically just an overgrown mess
1: mm-hmm. with with one office yeah no absolutely i mean we still have really one office everyone else is kind of smattered about where we can find a nice place to work but it really took us a long time to do it the right way um, when I first joined the team in 2016, the initial plan was to have guest experiences offered, I think, almost that year. Um, it's almost a joke in some ways where we had a big grand opening sign, you know, opening in fall 2016, and then we just kind of kept shooting out the date. But if anything, I think it spoke to the way that our founders are going about the project, where we didn't want to just put out there in a way hey, we're going you we all go, you know, enjoy the site. Um, we really want to make sure it was controlled and designed and done in a way that would really honor James Taylor and also showcase our site in a way that it deserved.
0: Uh, makes complete sense.
1: Yeah, well, granted, there's also miles of infrastructure and pipeworks and natural gas lines, and we had to run a natural gas line from France, it's uh, a whole lot of work.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure y'all had more raccoons out there than you did natural gas lines when I was out there the first time.
1: I think the ratio was 100 to 1. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So is is there anything coming down the, the pipe that you all have in the works that you can talk about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the best part about our team. We're constantly looking and evaluating our best experiences to build more depth, Creative about what we're offering. So um, the big things that have been that occurred this year are really the launch of our Jam Baca. The restoration series has been a grand success. Um, initially just focusing on producing a clear spirit, not for the purpose of getting something on the market, but getting a product on the market that we're really proud of, uh, which we can definitely talk about more later. And the other achievements have really just been opening to the public and then opening our public park portion of the property. So from essentially the boiler room over, we have a whole portion of the property that is open. Um, it's a quarter mile long botanical trail that was curated by John Carlson, a wonderful um, landscape designer out of Lexington, um, and really just being able to share that with the public. Down the pike, here, it wouldn't surprise me to some more events that are curated um, for us to offer to you all. You know, our first event that we did on site for ourselves was a cocktail competition. That was a wild success. We had the best bartenders from Tennessee, Kentucky. They um, all submitted some wonderful beverages came out, made the drinks public. Um, then the winner takes all. Um, it, went, it went pretty well. It was a blast. So many good cocktails.
0: Kevin, did you win?
2: I did not enter. Oh. Like, like all of them.
0: <laughs> Did you have any other questions you want to ask? You can ask me, and then I can reiterate them if uh, Brett doesn't want to listen. i will just talk slow. listen. What's that, Kevin? I'll
2: just talk slow. <laughs> all right, go ahead. <laughs> um, for the sorry, right, my questions, uh, my head. So I edit this out, obviously. Um. Go to
0: the next question, Chad. I was trying to buy some time. That's why I asked you if you had anything. (laughs) Uh, Getting back to a little bit more of, of your background, you said you had a list of 10 to 20 of your favorite pours. Can you give us some of those? I know you gave us a few earlier. Is there a top 10 you can give us? I think one of the things that's
1: always surprising for me is, while I appreciate and gravitate towards bourbon, my preferred spirits on my, like, top 10 or 20 list of all time tend to be a lot of rye or scotches, which is different for a lot of bourbon brain ambassadors. Um, but definitely, I think a lot of those early willets, you know, there's, like, two thousand that run of a lot of sourcing from old time, there's some monsters in that lot, between Red Hook, um, you know, you're I'm an iron Fist and rebel guy, well, if you want to get really nerdy, I think, 11. Um, some of those are just absolutely the world's greatest pours. Um, you know, bottles like Golden Wedding in the 1940s was doing this stunning ride. Poor in Roses, insanely high-quality rye whiskey um, in the 40s and early 50s. Um, favorite of all time definitely has to be the Melon um, Bottled Super Clean Plain Label 1909 bottlings of Old Overholt. Um, they're just beautiful and over 100 years, I think, like distilled for like, the last decade. It's really, really pretty. Um, frankly, there are a lot of great modern modelings. I mean, if you look at like Four Roses, what they're doing like the 08 Mariage that uh, Jim Rutledge did, one of the best tours I think of all time. Um, you know, Wild Turkey, Wild Turkey Tree one of my top 10, most beautiful bottles I've ever tasted. But not to disregard like that 8 year old 101 that they used to do. If you grab a bottle from a shelf back in the 80s and 90s, that was an insanely high-quality pour. Um, And I think a lot of people suck on them.
0: Yeah, I know you're a lover of the rise. I've I've,
1: I've (laughs) enjoyed quite a few
0: with you at the distillery.
2: So, Brett, a a lot of your pours that you've mentioned are... Obviously, something special, uh, separated from the normal shelf crabs, except the last one that you mentioned. What, what is castling doing to kind of separate themselves from um, every other quote unquote crap distillery that's out there?
1: Yeah, I, that's definitely a great question. I kind of think of it as a two different approaches, you know. A lot of it is starting with our grain. You know, when we are originally developing our recipes, a lot of your larger galleries are sourcing from big grain elevators, and it's not a knock against them at all. You know, when you're at that kind of equity scale and you need to buy, you know, tens of thousands of tonnage of corn on a yearly basis to produce your whiskeys, you know, it does give you some limitations as well for how deep down you can dive with, like, individual farmers. Um, And I think that was one of the things that excited me about on Mary Ann was a farmer out in Dairesville, Kentucky called Walnut Road, um, where Sam Holcomb and his family have been farming since the 1830s. And as opposed to sourcing a grain that I, mean, I don't want to use the word that's not appropriate for like a grain elevator, but a lot of the same yellow bank corn juice throughout the state. Sam has been really focusing on growing super high quality, especially non-GMO grains for a long time. He thought he really saw it as a way to diversify himself in the agricultural market. Um fed perfectly when you're working on developing a recipe that had a lot of this historic inflection back to what E. Schiller was achieving in the early 1900s. So not only was Sam producing a white corn that is absolutely stunning in its own right, he was also producing something really special, which was a Kentucky crimson Rye. And initially when we were doing the evaluation on it, you know, we were anxious. You know, a lot of the industry always looks towards Canada or Germany for you know very affordable, really Beautifully grown rye um, as a grain that is utilized for the majority of the whiskeys you're going to see on the market, even the, the rye that are being sold out of Kentucky. And instead, Sam said, Hey, rye whiskey, the German hybrid that we've been propagating up, specifically handle the climate here. And what was so stunning about it is with a much shorter growing season, the reason a lot of people got away from using Kentucky grown rye they're either used exclusively for cover crop or the bushel. Fields were quite low, uh, which uh, prevented false perspective that background. But every time we distill it, we, uh, at an R&D perspective or up in the lab, we just couldn't get away from it. I mean, it was so flavorful, very dense, very rich. Um, it had really a lot of attributes that I think were interesting that we weren't seeing a lot of the German Canadian rides that we have been doing some testing on. And once we started incorporating that into our whiskeys, we found it was just stunning. I mean, it's a huge spice note, but it's like bacon spice, you know, black cracked pepper. It almost has like a nice like herbaceous or herbosity to it. that You don't always see with some of those uh, Canadian grown rye. And it really became a nice back structure in our bourbon, especially because we could use a much lower percentage. So for our traditional bourbon, we use 73% white corn, 10% rye, and then 17% malted barley. Wow. Which is really going to top that off because, you know, Barley isn't just an enzyme converter. You know, a lot of places look towards barley because it's going to handle a lot of your heavy lifting in the cook and fermentation process from a sugar conversion standpoint as, hey, you put 5% it does its job. It has kind of a scientific inflection. But the truth is what we're finding is not all of scotch, Irish whiskey and beer could be wrong. Barley amazingly flavorful. You know, it's going to yield all these really rich flavors like Dutch baking chocolate, you know, macadamia nut, all this nice creaminess and viscosity um, in a beautiful way. So why not use more of it? You know, E.H. Taylor himself was a very vocal proponent of using about double the barley percentage that was historically pertinent at at that time. And what I think it really gives us is an advantage of from inception in the field, we're trying to be as thoughtful as we can all the way to bottling. You know, and that's the tip of the iceberg when you get into the way that we're doing our distillation on a column and then finishing in a doubler. Um, you know, while that doesn't even begin to get into our barrel entry proof being lowered to help break down those classic notes and those wood sugars more effectively. to even our cooper, you know, we use a wonderful cooperage out of Jackson, Ohio, called SpaceIde that are just taking a whole different look at what's been occurring in the world of bourbon. You know, taking that expertise that they've developed through, you know, being one of the largest French oak purveyors in the world and saying, hey, we think we can make a bourbon barrel in both a very traditional manner through longer seasoning periods and the way we're selecting our oak and both toasting and charring the barrel, but also not stopping there and saying, well, we're going to laser cut our saves, so we're going to get a better joining to them. There's going to be less evaporation, theoretically, and less loss as a result of loss and not evaporation. Um, we're just pretty spoiled from every partner that we've selected to work with on the property uh, just really... Doing some of the best anything that we could find in Kentucky. That's awesome. I feel like that was a whole like tirade about how much I love our bourbon. I don't <laughs> think I gave it away. It comes across and that. I thought I am excited for that low um,
2: low rye percentage, but the high malted barley percentage. That that's something you don't see a lot. Uh, I'm excited to give that a try.
1: Yeah. I mean we. We've been doing a little uh, sampling as things have been maturing, and frankly, I think we're all really excited about the direction it's taking. You know, still going to have some of those really classic notes, like that over-the-scotch, butterscotch, toffee, and caramel, but not just simply mimicking what was previously done at our site, but really building from it and saying, like, hey, what if we are really thoughtful about a rye, or what if we use a higher barley percentage? Like, can we create more complexity, more flavor, um, and more uniqueness in a way that makes complete sense? Um, really, for a product that we don't think there's a lot of out there with that specific flavor profile, currently.
2: Yeah, I think that's everyone's goal to do that, but I don't think anyone's succeeded yet. So, uh, hats off to you guys, and I hope I hope I hope, uh, I hope it happens. <laughs> yeah, and
1: we've been really frankly so surprised at what we've ever already been seeing in the warehouses. It's frankly a testament to you know. Mary Ann's hard work on the front end you know, I don't I have no idea how many recipes that she ran on research development upon these tiny little copper pot sills that she started with up in the lab all I know is she used them so much she blew them up I mean she basically burned them out where they weren't functional anymore So we had to switch over to glass distillation up in the lab just because we were running R&D so hard to dial it in to the exact specifications we wanted um and I just love that Everything that I've always seen with our project, and really, frankly, that's what attracted me to the founders, you know, Will and Wes in the first place, was while they seemed to be these, like, crazy guys from Kentucky, like, neither of them had a background in spirits, Will was an attorney by trade, Wes uh, had been involved in, you know, construction consultation and a lot of, like, the financial world for a while, even though they seemed like they were like, oh, we have no idea what we're doing, we're just going by the like you know the seat of our pants, the reality was every time I talked to them, they were making extremely diligent and thoughtful decisions, you know. And I think one of my first questions to them when we first met was like, oh, who's making your still? And they're like, oh, Rob from Bindo? I'm like, well, they're the best in the world. (laughs) I'm like, that's amazing. That's a great thing. Yeah, no, like every, they're really doing their due diligence in a way that I don't think they always give themselves credit for. Because without having a background experience, you know, they were able to step back from it enough to not understand our site as an impossible task, which is what a lot of people viewed it as. But we're still able to say, well, we want the best pipe fitter in the world. You know, we use a company called Clark Mechanical that are truly some of the best pipe fitters and engineers in the world. And especially for distilleries, I mean, that's 90% of the work plus that they do in the state of Kentucky. They're great at what they do. And, you know, using such a great farmer, even like SpaceIde, like being able to go outside the box enough to find some really wonderful partners to work with, but still making sure that they're absolutely the best at what they do and not being willing to compromise on that. I think it's been really special across the board.
2: But I think that jumps back to my previous question around what, what sets Castle and Key apart from every other craft distiller is um, a, a lot of these craft distillers you see, they have investors and the investors are obviously eager to get their money back. And so they they cut coal And I hate to say this because... I love whiskey and I love the whiskey industry, but they cut corners and their, their main goal is to get something out on the shelves. And that seems like the last thing that's in mind for Castle and Key. It, it's all around quality and they're not going to put anything out that, that isn't up to their standards. I mean, in, in my opinion, that's, that's going to be something that, that sets Castle and Key, apart from from any other small distiller out there, I mean, I, it's even funny saying small distillery because when I think of Castle & Key, I, I immediately put them in the in the realm of, of Maker's Mark and um, Buffalo Trace and Jim Beam. It, they're already one of the big players
1: because of the attention to quality that they're doing. Yeah, I mean, thank you. That's a wonderful compliment. I think with our site, I think that's where we're really spoiled. You know, in a lot of ways, craft distillers are often restricted by fiscal need. You know, there's a, it's a lot of money to get involved in this industry currently. You know, I think it's funny every day there's new distilleries that are added, but it's a lot of work. You know, we can attest to that, especially both renovating and restoring a very neglected historic site, but just the day-to-day operations of building out of distillery on our, on our scale, it's a lot of capital. You know, frankly, it's a credit to our – We have four partners. We're not a big corporate board. We're not this huge entity where I have to jump on the phone to explain things to shareholders on a daily basis. It's Marianne Eaves, our master distiller, Brooke Smith, and then our founding partners, Will Irvin and Wes Murray. They're there most days. Marianne works a combination of third shift, research development shifts, and just whenever she has to go and market to spread the word about what she's been able to do, um, they're there. You know, Will and Wes are on site today, and I think that's really what's given our team a lot of respect in them is Wes will jump in with a shovel just as fast as anybody else on site. So in a lot of ways, it doesn't have that corporate aspect where you know, yeah, we're structured like a corporation, and you know, we have a lot of standards in place to make sure we're able to achieve to the highest quality. But at the same time, if you need something, the doors open, go talk to Will and he'll help you. Um, And I think that's always, I think the people is really what's been our biggest advantage in a lot of ways, while simultaneously having our partners not willing to put something out on the market that they weren't thrilled with, you know, rather to wait until our bourbon is minimum four years old. The earliest you'll see a bourbon whiskey from us could be 2021 um, more prevalently, but maybe a tiny little bit at the end of 2020, if that meets Marianne's standards of quality. I mean, a rye whiskey could be ready as early as next year, again, as long as it makes her expectation. You know, heck, even our gin and bach is a great example of this. We could really have probably started distilling it right after we started making our um, bourbon in 2016 when we turned on the stills. We waited on this a year to make sure it was dialed in to the point where we were thrilled with it. And it wasn't just good. It was what we deemed to be except, exceptional. Um, and to have a team that's willing to wait to do the right thing, I think, really just puts us in a lucky position. And it allows me a, a lot of brevity because I get to go talk about something that I'm really excited about and not kind of, you know, have to snip together these stories or like narrative that just isn't true in a lot of instances. That's awesome.
0: So Brett, I know you have
1: a, I know you have a, a
0: unique barrel select program. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we were pretty lucky. And I think if anything, it's a major compliment to the people who, um, really supported us from the beginning of the project. When I first started with the team, you know, everybody's done kind of a myriad of barrel selections, um, especially a lot of the enthusiast groups or retails and bars. Uh, and my, I myself have really the ability to do a lot of them, and I always found them as one of the highlights of anything I've ever done in the industry. You know, going with your friends to go pick a great barrel whiskey is just a really special thing, frankly. Um, but without having any mature product, we ran into this loophole. We were like, well, how do we expose people to that kind of experience um, and start to build some excitement about what we're doing, but in a way that's both legal and also is considered for our future. Um, and that's how our barrel experience program really began. You know, I almost joke it started as a, an all fan gesture. We were talking about a building being phase five, and I mentioned it to Will and Wes, and I was like, hey, what if I start like a barrel experience now? They're like, with what product? And I'm like, hear me out. Let, let's think about this. So the program itself was pretty exciting, um, really pretty exclusive as well, where we have a, a substantial wait list, and the program's so been officially shut down as we wait till those barrels mature. But essentially it was based on this premise that you would come out to site, um, you wouldn't be buying a barrel necessarily in the traditional sense, but you would have a reservation fee, You'd come out and check out our facility, you'd go on a massive, really cool, behind-the-scenes VIP experience, and we'd actually physically conclude by filling a barrel with our new make and marking it for yourself. Um, at that point, we roll it in the warehouse. Then every year thereafter, after, thereafter, you're able to taste the barrel and see how it's progressing and maturing. Um, so in a lot of ways, you're able to see our growth as you've partnered with us. And then once the barrel hits maturity, we bottle it up um, like you would expect a, a beautiful single barrel whiskey to be um, correctly handled. And then we send it to a local retailer or you know bar according to the three tier system. So we keep everything legal and happy. Um, you know, it's not features in a sense, it's not buying a barrel, but it was definitely a unique approach to, um, just do something that no one had really seen before at that
0: point. Kevin, did you have something you wanted to say before I asked that question?
2: Yeah, I, I, have just had the opportunity to do the, the barrel experience program and it was an absolute blast, um basically get taken around the entire distillery by, by Brett and Marianne. Um, you get a chance to taste some of the stuff. They have aging. Um, you get to taste the raw make of, of, um, of uh, the rye and the bourbons that, that they are, are barreling. And then you literally get to sit there or stand there and, and pour whatever distillate you want into the barrel and uh, fill it up. You're to hammer in the, the, the bung and, uh, and and sign your name to the barrel and, and put it on, on the rick. So it, it's an absolute
1: awesome experience, and if you ever have a chance to do it, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean, we, I think if anything, we're just really grateful for the people that wanted to support us in the early iterations of the site. You know, when we initially pitched this program to a lot of people like Kevin, we didn't even have anything aging in the warehouse at this juncture, let alone, you know, the program even ready to start filling barrels in this sense. But for the fact that they just believed in what we were doing to the point where they were waiting in line to come out to our site to fill barrels of whiskey, I think was really special. And the great part is with that program, um, once those barrels have maturity, then we'll probably start a uh, more, I, I don't want to use the word classic structured barrel experience, because I don't think we we'll are ever do that in the like, Hey, we show up to a distillery, we feed you lunch, and you go pick a barrel. You know, we always pride ourselves on being really thoughtful with our hospitality. So I can guarantee that this is just a snippet of what will be occurring with our actual mature barrel selection program that will probably be uh, starting to become available in the next, well, more than a few years probably, um, that you can just be guaranteed that whatever experiences we do on site are going to be something you've never seen before, very thoughtful, you know, hospitality-driven, the way he Shaler had himself intended with the site to be utilized. I have a question with uh, with how uh, uh, cocktails. play into your background and how, how cocktail driven a lot of the the other people on staff are. Uh, we've we've got we've seen the vodka, we've seen the, the restoration gin. We've, we know
2: that uh, two bourbons are coming and a rye is coming. Is there is there anything else that, that is in the works that you can talk about? Um, I mean. Personally, I would love to see a, a Castle and Key Bermuda where you partner with a winery and, and work on the um, the herbs and spices that go in. Um, but anything you can talk about there?
1: I mean, those are, that's a heck of an idea, frankly. Um, and really <laughs> yeah, like, if you want me just to do it, I'll, I'll start doing the R&D when we slow up a little bit. Um <laughs> But I think we're just in a fortunate position, you know, with Mary Ann's background, with Brown Foreman, you know, working as an intern and then working her way up through really due diligence into the research development program um, and being part of that for a while, she has such a great foundation and not only chemical engineering, but also research development for specifically spirits. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if we really start to branch out and do some really unique things because um, frankly, we're just not restricted. You know, if it makes a great product, if we're happy with the way it's turning out, if we put in the time to shape something. I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. And maybe even just starting with gins, you know, doing a barrel age gin or something like that wouldn't surprise me if we eventually start to go that direction, but in a unique way, you know, just trying to make sure everything we're doing is thoughtful, curated and unique in a lot of ways. Um, Bermude would be awesome. I'd love to. Uh, I think it would be really understanding our capacity for that kind of production what would be the equipment needs? And that's why we're a whole team. You know, I could probably dial in a vermouth on my stovetop. That was probably pretty decent. Um, would it meet our quality standards from like an actual batch scale production? Yeah, we'll, we'll a little harder to batch. Yeah, and well, I think that's exciting. You know, we have such a like, one of my favorite people on site, uh, Meg Butts, has been handling a lot of our distillery expansion. Uh, so she's in charge of incorporating our new boiler house and, and expanding our production from 60 barrels a day northwards of 150. I mean, she's awesome at what she does. So before I could even really take anything like that to um, production on site, it would be a lot of conversations with her like, hey, what do I need to do this? What does that scale look like? Does it make sense? You know, does it fit into our ideology? Um, so the cool part is it's such a collaborative aspect. You know, I like to think, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Marianne's such a wonderful visionary from our research development side. Um but it takes specific equipment to do some weird or funkier things. Like I really would love to do bitters, but um, frankly, just with the way we're set up right now, I think it'd be tough to execute it perfectly. And if it's not going to be perfect, you know, we'll wait until it is. Um, but man, I'd love to do remits. Awesome.
0: All right. We're right at 40 minutes. So I guess we'll uh, have one final question. Um, Kevin, do you have one last question? Uh, he, he's answered pretty much everything I've uh, I, I, I've been asking myself. So that's, that's great. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming on, Brett. And
2: thank
1: you. Uh,
0: I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I uh, uh, I know you're really we you've, we've known each other for a while, and you're a really interesting dude to listen to, and especially talk to. Yeah, thank you. I've just been
1: really lucky to be in a a small community of and you know, I think that's what's been most exciting for me when I started in whiskey, uh, both as, you know, a collector as really just an enthusiast initially. I think that's always what kept drawing me back to the field was the fact that it's such a great community, you know, between other distillers, distilleries, um, just people who work at bourbon, we tend to all be pretty laid back, you know, right? If you, if you don't like making bourbon for a living, you, you might just be in the wrong field. Um, we've been really lucky to meet a lot of really interesting individuals, enthusiasts, I mean, being able to meet both you and um, Kevin has been a blessing really, you know, just great guys to share nice pours with. And I always think that's one of the questions I struggle with is like, what's your favorite pour? And I always think I've had bad whiskey with good people and I've absolutely loved every sip of it. Um, And I think that really speaks to the community as a whole and what you all are doing with just spreading education. It didn't exist when I really got into bourbon other than a few writers that were really your only resources, you know, Chuck Cowdery's of the world, the Fred Minnix, Michael Beaches, you know, every day we add on different resources and different informational places where enthusiasts can not only learn about bourbon, but they can educate themselves on their interests within that field. Because bourbon is not just what's in the glass, it's the history, it's the heritage, it's the artistry, it's our farmers. Um, And being able to share that story has been really special for our whole team.
0: I think that's a perfect uh, sentiment to close on. So I really appreciate everybody coming on. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Brett, thanks for coming on. I hope everything uh, continues to go swimmingly. I'm
1: just excited to work on such a
0: fun project. All right. And thanks for everybody listening and uh, enjoy your pours and have a good day.